Welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church. City Church is a community of worshippers and mission. We exist to catalyze a gospel-centered movement that renews Lagos spiritually, socially, and culturally. You can find out more about us at www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos. Good morning. Um, Today's Bible reading is taken from Malachi 3, verse 6 to 12. At the end of the reading, I'll um, end with, this is the word of the Lord, and um, you're all to respond, thanks be to God. Malachi 3, 6 to 12. I, the Lord, do not change, so you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors, You have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me and I'll return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessings that there will not be room enough to store it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops and vines in your fields. And vines in your fields will not drop their fruits before it is ripe, says the Lord Almighty. Then all nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord God Almighty. This is the word of the Lord. So welcome again. We have been, we started the series um, at the beginning of September. This is the fifth in that series. It's called uh, Idols and the City. We are saying that uh, everybody worships something, right? Everybody has a God. Whether you express that in formalized, any kind of formalized religion, that God has a name or not. We all worship something. Now, if we're Christians, we say we worship one God, and so any of, the worship of any other thing is an idol. That's what we call an idol. And we're saying that, look, in the city of Lagos, we all deal with idols. But in particular, there are three idols that really drive the city, money, sex, and power. So we've been looking at money all through this uh, last month in, in September, and we come to the final topic, uh, well, the final, the final sermon on that, on money. I should start by um, uh, 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 maybe telling you this little bit of a story. It's not a story because it actually really happened. So there's a lady called Eudora Erickson. She was an American living in Ecuador. Now, in Ecuador, they speak Spanish. I know how it is when you've learned a little bit of language, you enter a particular country, you know, you start trying to speak that language everywhere. So she learned a little bit of Spanish, right, a little bit, not like where I learned it, right? She learned a little bit of it, and then she now said, she went out boldly trying to proclaim and speak the Spanish that she knew, right? Um, willy-nilly, you know? Now, in Spanish, the word um, mierda is, is, um, is poop, right? You know, poop, poo, but think more explicit, right? So I, I can't say it from here. You know what I mean, right? All right. Oh, you don't know, right? To the pure, all things are pure, right? Yeah, I know. Uh, all right, so mierda is poop, a more expensive version of that. And then miedo is fear or, or scared, all right? So um, she misunderstood this. She, she actually misunderstood it. And so before she realized that she misunderstood it, she had used it in a, no, a lot of statements, all right? Do we have the... Uh, oh, Okay. I thought it would be, it's coming here now. All right, so we, we have that. So she started using it in statements. So, for instance, think of these three statements. So, remember, mierda is poop and miedo is scared. And most of the time she was using mierda in place of miedo. So, for instance, she, in this uh, first statement, <laughs> I love, she thought she was saying, I love, but she was saying, I love, <laughs> all right, she put me there, not scary. So it wasn't really scary. All right, the next one, she says, 
Recently, when I go diving, I start to get when we go too deep. Okay, imagine the people listen like, wow, she's really, really, she's a confident person. She's able to tell me all of that. And then the third one, my dream was so crazy, I woke up so scared or so, I woke up so much in, oh no, it's taking to you guys too long to get it. And I'm not good. And I'm not going to say it. I'm sorry. Yeah, we are, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not going to say it. Well, there's nothing unchristian about that. It's just somebody not doing what is. She was so scared that she did something that she shouldn't. She should do in the toilet, not on the. You know, it, it, one of the things you find is that when when you cross cultures like that, there is a lot of misunderstanding. You have that cultural misunderstanding, and that leads to misuse, like in her case, misuse of language, and also. There are other things that we misuse. In her case, it's a bit comical. She wouldn't say that. It was very embarrassing. But in other cases, it can be very dangerous. For instance, if you misuse, if you misused, or a child, and this has happened, misused a gun, a gun that was meant to be used for hunting, all of a sudden, it triggered it and it started shooting people. That would be very, very dangerous. But at the same time, we also misuse Bible verses. And when you use them in religion, it can be very dangerous. I don't know of very few passages of scriptures that have been misused than Malachi chapter 3. And often it puts you in two, in, on the divide of two, uh, uh, two divides. One is on the left hand, with total manipulation of the Old Testament, you are left with thoughts, dreadful thoughts of the devourer that is coming upon your finances, or fantastic thoughts of the windows of heaven that are about to shower upon you. Somebody say, Amen. Amen. Was that to the devourer or to the windows of heaven? Just check it. On the other hand, on the right, there is a total disregard of the Old Testament, a misunderstanding of the New Testament, and a weird view of freedom that leads to a display of your stinginess and spiritual indiscipline. Somebody say amen. Oh, I didn't know you say amen for that one. But actually, if we listen to Malachi properly and listen to him in light of the entire biblical teaching, we'll see that it can teach us a lot about serving God and not serving idols. Now, I should give you a little bit of a background, some background info. In the time of Malachi, Malachi, as we know, is the last book of the Old Testament, but it's the last book of the prophetic writings. Malachi is most likely a contemporary of Ezra and Nehemiah. That is, when the children of Israel had sinned, 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 God took them out of their land, the promised land, he threw them into Babylon. After 70 years, they now returned from exile, went back into Israel. It wasn't, it was a shadow of itself. They had rebuilt the temple, but the temple wasn't as great as it used to be in Solomon's time. But after a while, the people who had sinned and had been taken to exile were back in the mess, sinful mess that they were in. So this could be objectively measured by how they were breaking God's covenant by breaking commandments in the law of Moses. Law of Moses was a covenant through which God, made, uh, God uh, put himself with his people, and there were stipulations in that covenant. So, for instance, if you read uh, chapter 2, verse 11 and 16, you will see that they had started to marry foreign people, or they started to have unauthorized divorces. And this was banned in the law of Moses. Or in chapter 2 also, but verse 7 to 9, you will see that the priesthood had become totally corrupt. And if you just look up in verse 5 um, um, that, uh, of chapter 3, just, we didn't read this, but uh, the, the, the verse just before where Bola read, he says, so I will come and put, trial, put you on trial. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and de- deprive the foreigners among you of justice. So there were also a host of sins and injustices. This is where... Israel was. And so when Malachi as a prophet was speaking, he was decrying them of all of these things. Now by the time we get to verse 6 to 12, he zeroes in on another thing that they have been doing. What is that thing? Verse 8. You robbed me. They were robbing God. They were robbing God. And how did they rob God? 
Well, they disobeyed the commandment to generosity. The commandment to generosity. You see, last week, Dami told us about the heart of generosity, and it's absolutely crucial. But if we're going to live as people who serve the true God and not a false God, you will see that generosity, which helps us to come and combat the idolatry of money, needs both the heart and the commandment. And so this sermon we titled The Command to Generosity, and I will look at it in three points. Don't mind that, me did four points last week. you try it again. Three points, back to normal service resumed. First one, the price for ignoring mandated generosity. The price for ignoring mandated generosity. The second point is the function of mandated generosity. And then the third is the method for mandated generosity. The price for ignoring mandated generosity, the function of mandated generosity, and the method for mandated, mandated generosity. So let's get into the first point, the price for ignoring mandatory generosity. Now, as I said, they were robbing God. Now, what was the price for this robbing of God? Because they were robbing God, you see in verse 9, it says that you are under a curse. They were under a curse. And it wasn't one individual. It was the whole nation, because God had covenanted with the whole nation. The whole nation was under a curse. Why? It says it, because... They were breaking the commandments of God in tithes and in offerings. They were under a curse because they broke the commandment of tithes, of bringing tithes and offering. Now, part of that curse was, was almost certainly that, sorry, that they were experiencing a famine, drought, because God has shut, he has shut um, the windows of heaven. That by, by that he meant the rains were not coming down to wet, the Israel was an agricultural community. So if they didn't have rain, you can imagine what would happen to their crops. Now, they could have said something like, oh, sorry, God, we are not tithing because we don't have anything to tithe with. Because we're under a curse, we're not tithing. So if we remove the curse, we will now tithe. No, the problem wasn't that, they, uh, that God didn't curse them because they didn't tithe, but they were cursed because they did not tithe. Did I say that rightly? God didn't curse them because they didn't tithe. Yeah, no, that's correct. You figure it out. God didn't curse them because they didn't tithe. They were cursed because they didn't tithe. Right? So they, their, their disobedience came before God's curse. Right? Okay, I should have said it that way. All right. I still think I'm correct. They were cursed because they did not tithe. Now, you may not be a Christian and you're here. And let me first say this. If you believe, as the Bible does believe, that there is a God who created the whole world, just one God, he created the whole world. And if he is the designer, he knows how the thing he has designed should function. So he puts rules and stipulations. Now, if that God commands certain things, the fact that he created, the designer is the one that's going to have to put the commands. And he says, look, if you break this command, my thing will not work well, and I want my thing to work well. He has every right to put a punishment down for when we break those commands. Because then the thing wouldn't work. It's not too far-fetched. We say, oh, this is such an angry God. Think about it. If you had someone working for you that constantly disobeyed the rules, what would you eventually do? You, you'd get rid of the person. That makes sense. Now, but I want to say there's also a deeper reason. It's not just that they were disobeying. There's a deeper reason for why this isn't a good thing. You see, when Israel broke the commandments God had given them for living, they were effectively making their own rules. And look at verse, uh, verse, um, verse, uh, the end of verse 7. They were turning against God. That's why he was saying, return to me. They had turned away. The way he looked at the breaking of the commandments was them turning away. Meaning, if they are turning away from the true God, they are turning away to what? Another God. In other words, disobedience is an expression of idolatry. Obedience is crucial to right worship. Whenever you sleep with someone God says you shouldn't sleep with, you are effectively saying, God, you don't really know how things work with this uh, sexual desire thing. I don't think you really understand. So I have to write my own rules and follow them. Whenever you say that, on a particular thing, you know more about it than 
an all-knowing, omniscient God, guess what you've just done? You said that, I think I need to take your job of being God. Every time we break the commandments of God, we are effectively saying that on this part, you are saying, no, 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 I'm very humble, God. You know 99% of things, but on this one, I don't think you really understand it like me. At that point, you are saying that you are God and he isn't. When Israel decided to keep their tithes to themselves and not bring it to the storehouse as God had commanded in verse 10a, as you see, they were effectively saying that they knew a better way to use the tithe than God's own way. Thus, implying that they were better at the God job than God himself. Whenever we feel that the rules of generosity that God has laid out are too difficult for us and they must be revised, we are playing Disobedience is as a sin of witchcraft, but presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. 1 Samuel 15, verse 23. And let me also say this. The fact that you don't submit to God's mandate of giving doesn't mean you are not going to submit to another God's demands. Now remember, we all worship something, and every God that we call a God, always has a demand on our money. Oh, why? Because money, the way you use your money, is a form of worship. So there is no God that you will serve, whether you know you are serving that God or not, that will not tell you how to use your money. The question is this, are you worshipping the right God or not? So if you are spending your money so much, it is because the God of approval is telling you this is how you get the approval of people. If you are saving your money too much, it's because the God of security is telling you this is how you can secure your future. Every God demands a use of your money. The question is, are you worshipping the true God or not? But let's go back to tithing. What's the big deal with tithing anyway? What was the big deal with this God and this view of tithing? Well, that takes me to my second point, the function of mandated generosity. Now, on this point, the other one was quite easy. This point, I'm going to stretch your mind. We're doing Bible study. We're bringing Theology Day here, all right? For this point, it's Theology Day. So, don't, say, oh, don't tune off. I'll be looking at your eyes. Don't tune off at this point. We're going to do a little bit of Bible study, all right? Now, and please get my slides ready. They will soon be, I will soon ask for them. Now, Israel was, as I said, was a mess, right? And, but... You see, Israel, whatever was going on in Israel was really a reflection of what's going on in the world. In fact, the world's mess was the reason why Israel existed. Let me explain that. So, my first slide. God, I'm just taking the Bible, the, the storyline of the Bible. In the beginning, it says God created the heavens and the earth. He created everything, and all he kept saying was, it was good. So, he created a good world, right? The designer, he's put it together and he's made the thing work well. He then puts the rules for people that are going to use this product. He puts the rules, this is what you should do, you should, and he actually just gave them one rule, just one rule, don't eat of one tree. He gave them many trees to eat from. He said, don't eat of one tree. Now, they were tempted by Satan, who then said, when you eat of that tree, you will be like God. So disobedience was motivated from wanting to be like God. That's what we call the fall. And once the fall happened, the good world that God created turned into what? A bad world. All right? So that's the only world that existed. A bad world. It was terrible. Things happened. Sin. Everybody was doing their own thing. Now, God devised a plan to sort out this mess or this chaos that was in the world. In that plan, he called, he called a man called Abraham. All right? Abraham, God called Abraham. And God said, look, because of what these people did, the whole world is under a curse. It's now under a curse. But through you, I will reverse the curse. Through you, I will bless the world. In you, all nations of the earth will be blessed. So God was going to use Abraham to bless the world. In other words, he was going to use Abraham and Abraham's offspring. He was going to use that to bless the world. Now, that Abraham's offspring was not just his child that he had with his wife who was 90 and he was 100, but the generations that would come out of that child, which led to a nation. 
the nation was called Israel, and those who are non-Israelites were called Gentiles. So all of a sudden, if you read the Old Testament, there are just two ways of looking at the world. The Jews, or the Israelites, and the Gentiles. Amen? All right. So, these Israelites were God's own people. And God, if he's going to call them as his people, he has to dwell among them. All gods always dwell with their people. He's going to dwell among them. So he told them they should build a sanctuary for him to dwell among them. Now, before they got into what they called their own land, the promised land, that, that sanctuary was called a tabernacle. When they got into their land, it was called a temple. All right? This is where God dwelled with them. Now, he dwelled in that place, but there were different structures around it. And depending on where you functioned in that place um, was going to determine how holy, the word holy or consecrated your work is. So, look at this now. Yep. So, what I mean by this is, if you look at the inner, the inner circle there, well, the outer ring is the Gentiles, all right? The outer ring is the Gentiles. But the inner circle, that is where God's holiness is most seen. We can call that the holy of holies. The circle outside of that is the holy place. The circle outside of that is the court where this holy place is in. We call it the outer court. And then the circle outside of that is called the camp of the Israelites. And then the circle outside that is the Gentiles. Do we understand? And so God's holiness starts its most, um, because he dwells in the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was. That's where his holiness is most felt. And you keep going. Now, in these different places, you have different people that are functioning. So in the holiest place, the Holy of Holies, only one person was allowed to go. It's called the high priest. In the holy place, the priests were allowed to go. And then in the outer court, the Levites. Now, who are these Levites? Because the priest and the high priest also come from the Levites. Israel had 12 tribes. Now, I'm not, I'm not going to read uh, these things. These, the references, just read Numbers 3, uh, 5 to 7 and 11 to 13. But Israel had 12 tribes. God said, okay, out of these 12 tribes, I'm going to call one that is going to be my firstborn. And that firstborn is in regards to how they serve in the temple. I'm going to take these ones. They will not work in the farms. They will work in this tabernacle. That firstborn of mine is going to be called the tribe of Levi. Now, it's out of these Levites, I will now call a family. That family is going to be called the priest. That's the family of Aaron. And in that family of Aaron, the priest, there will always be a high priest. These people will do the holy work on behalf of all the Israelites. When they were doing the work of God in the temple or the tabernacle, they were doing it on. They were representing all the Israelites. If God is dwelling with them, God needs to be served in different ways. Sacrifices need to be offered. All these different things. So these Levites were doing it on behalf of the Israelites. They were representing the Israelites. Do you understand? Their work represented the Israelites. Now, what would the Israelites be doing? And they have to go and farm. So they were farming. And they were working in the camp. They were doing all of the things. Who were they doing it for? Well, they were doing it for themselves, but they were also doing it for the Levites. Why? The Levites were not farming. They weren't allowed to farm. So the Levites would do spiritual work, quote-unquote, and the, um, the Israelites would do material work. In other words, the system, there was a spirit, if you like, a spiritual economic system that enabled the commonwealth of Israel to function. One was sowing spiritually, and then the other was sowing materially. Now, how were the Levites meant to eat? The Israelites would take a tenth of what they had, because these people are working on our behalf and they can't farm, so they would take a tenth, called the tithe, and give it to the Levites. And then the Levites will take a tenth of what they have and they will give it to the priest. You can see that in Nehemiah chapter 10. All right? They will give it to the priest. So the priest got the tithe of the tithe. 
That tithe of the tithe is what you take into the storehouse of the temple. So when it says that you robbed me or bring the tithe into the storehouse, this is the tithe that belonged to the priest, all right? What they would live on to continue the work of the Lord. Now remember, the work of the Lord there was essential. It was essential to be done. But the people that had to give themselves to it could not farm. So the people they were doing it on behalf of had to support them because these people were supporting those people spiritually. Do we understand? And so there was a reciprocal nature of the whole thing, of this system, so that the function of the community functioned properly. But remember, Israel did not exist for Israel's sake. Israel, as the Bible says, you are meant to be the light of a light to the Gentiles. I have called you to be a light to the Gentiles. So that fun- the functioning of that spiritual economic system was crucial to enable Abraham's blessing to come upon the Gentiles. What am I trying to say? If that system got broken, it wasn't just Israel's problem. It was the world's problem. And that's why God was angry with them. If that system got broken, if some people withheld the tithes, then the priest would not be able to do the holy work. The priest would become corrupt, as we saw in Malachi 2. You, the priest became corrupt. And they, they became corrupt. The children of Israel were keeping their own tithes, and the old world was in a mess. That is the whole scenario. That is why this thing is very important. Now you would ask me, hey, well, that's nice, but that's the Old Testament. What does this have to do with the New Testament? And the answer to that is everything, of course. Now, let me first say, we are not under the Old Covenant. All right? Can I say that? We are not under the Old Covenant. In fact, we read in Hebrews chapter 7 that the priesthood of Aaron has been taken away. Hebrews 7, 11 verse 2. There is a new priesthood. It says this. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, and indeed the law given to the people established that, prince, that priesthood. The law given to the people established the priesthood. That is, the law and the priesthood are inseparable. Why was there still another, a need for another priest to come? One in the order of Melchizedek and not in the order of Aaron. In the Psalms, God had promised David that there was another priesthood that was coming that would be forever. So he's saying if the Levitical priesthood could have attained perfection, why is God saying there is another priesthood that is coming? And so he then concludes with this. For when the priesthood is changed, the law must also be changed. In other words, the Levitical priesthood was done away with, the law was done away with, so you are not under the law. As Christians, the law is the old covenant. We are not under the law. In fact, as Christians, we believe that when Peter says in 1 Peter 2 verse 9 that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, we believe that every Christian is a priest. We now don't have non-priests and priests. Every Christian is what? A priest. And in that regard, the talking about tithe, paying tithe to a priest, it just doesn't apply. It just doesn't apply. And so why are we talking about it? Let's just do away with it. Well, not so fast. I want us to understand something. How is the Old Testament um, uh, connected to the New Testament? Well, the most primary way the Old Testament is connected to the New Testament is by what we call fulfillment. Everybody say fulfillment. fulfillment. Say it again. So let me give you one fulfillment. The body of Christ, Christ and his body, is the fulfillment of the Old Testament priesthood. That is, God created a priesthood. He told Israel, you will be a nation, a kingdom of priests unto me, but then he still separated them. But the, 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 this body of people in the Old Testament were looking forward to a body of God's people that will all be priests. And in Christ, who is the high priest over all, we confess, and then his body, as he said, you are a royal priesthood. So, the church is the fulfillment of Israel. Do you understand? What Israel was pointing to, the church eventually became. Jesus Christ also, as a sacrifice, once and for all, is the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament sacrifices. Do you understand? But that's not the only way that the Old Testament and New Testament are connected. That's the primary way, but there's another way. 
Now, this fulfillment thing that I just spoke about, no, nobody spoke more about it than Paul. It was Paul that kept telling us we are not under the law. And in 1 Corinthians 9, that same Paul, verse 13, says this. Don't you know that those who serve in the temple get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in what is offered on the altar. Who is talking about? Huh? What priest? Levitical priest, isn't it? Don't you know that? So he's giving you. Then verse 14, he says, In the same way the Lord has commanded, commanded, that those who preach the gospel, now he's talking in the New Testament, those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. I thought we were not under the law. I thought it was, no. There is a way the Old Testament is connected to the New Testament primarily by fulfillment. But there's another way the Old Testament and New Testament are connected. That is by what we call principle. Do you understand me? Again, I say, there is no such thing as the Levitical priesthood in the New Testament. But the Old Testament is written down, 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says this. He says, look, now these things happen to them as an example. He has just talked about the children of God in the wilderness as an example. But they were written down for our instruction. It was written to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. Who are the are On whom the ends of the ages have come. He's saying... There is a way the Old Testament is written down for New Testament Christians as an ex- uh, sorry as instruction instruction in principle. Listen to what Paul is doing because this is very very important for us. God commanded in the same way that there were some people at the front lines of ministry in the Old Testament. God has commanded that in the New Testament gospel, those on the front line of the ministry also receive. They are earning from the ministry, just like in the old. Not that they are a fulfillment of the Old Testament. Pastors and people that work in ministry are not a new priesthood. Nonetheless, the dynamic of the spiritual economic uh, uh, system in the Old Testament is repeated in the New Testament. That's why Paul can say this in Galatians chapter 6. Nevertheless, this New Testament, nevertheless, the one who receives instruction in the word, the one who receives instruction in the word, should share all good things with their instructor. Or that 1 Corinthians 9 verse 11. If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? This is what Paul is saying. He's saying that some, also in the church, some sow spiritual seed and then reap material harvest, and others sow material seed and reap a spiritual harvest. Amen? In this regard, when we who are not serving in frontline ministry don't regularly give to where we are spiritually reaping, that is robbery. I hope you hear me clearly. I'm not telling you about the New Testament, not the Old Testament. I'm not trying to bring us under law. I'm saying in principle, according to Paul in the New Testament, if you are reaping from somewhere materially, regularly, and you are not sowing materially, that's robbery. Because think about it. The church fulfills the, 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 uh, the Israel. It's called the New Israel. What is the church's mission? The church is giving to this. What Israel could not do, the church is meant to do. The church is meant to be the light of Christ to all those who do not believe. It is as the church is healthy, as the church is serving itself, that it can reach out to the world. But if one part is taken and the other part is, just, is not giving at all, how would the church work? Which somebody then says, and how about the poor? I remember seeing a tweet this week. Somebody said in this tweet, between helping the poor and paying tithes in church, which one pleases God most? You know, there are some things that just, it hits you at the wrongest time. <laughs> the moment I saw it, I just wrote, which one pleases God most, loving your spouse or loving your kids? Tell me, which one? <laughs> There are some brilliant people here. Which one pleases God most? Love your spouse or love your kids? 
That was definitely my kids or this part of mine. <laughs> In other words, it's a foolish question. Right? Why are, you, why, are you, why are you pitting them against each other? Why are you saying which one? You see, when people do that, you can see the stinginess that is there. Let me tell you something. I feel sorry for the poor most of the time in this debate. Because the poor are a great excuse. You say, oh, there are so many poor people around, but you are bringing the money to church. You know, where people that talk like that, people that talk like that, you know what they just done, what they did? The day before, they gave 1,000 naira to one poor person. Then this debate came up. Then they now had some kind of self-righteous whatever, and now start talking about the poor. The next time they engage the debate, six months after, they will give to the poor again. Do you understand? They don't normally give even to the poor. But they use the poor as an excuse to hide their stinginess. They use the poor as an excuse to run away from what God has actually mandated. There is no reason for you to say, which one does God love the most? Giving regularly to my church and also giving to the poor. Why not do both of them? Some say, ah, my family's, my family's needs. Really? Oh, I thought the church was meant to be also your family. In fact, if anything, the church is the family that would outlast your actual natural family. You say, oh, blood is thicker than water. Yes, and the spirit is thicker than the blood. Don't get me wrong. I'm not talking, I'm not saying you should go and be, become irresponsible with your family. Who that does not provide for his family is worse than an infidel, right? I'm not saying that it isn't. But there's another family as well. Don't say, until I take care of all my siblings and take care of all my whatever, then I'll now start giving to church. And you still go to the church regularly. It's robbery. There is something about the health, the commonwealth. I love that word, commonwealth. Because in this, in the church, there is the wealth materially, there's also the wealth spiritually. We are all called to be responsible. We bring our talents, we serve. That's part of the wealth that we bring. But don't just say, well, I serve, I give my time. Uh-huh. Give your time and give your money as well. Time and money, are they apples and oranges. We like apples and we like oranges, don't you? It is robbery when we don't. You see, that thing, when we do that, then we are putting the church on a, good start, on a good footing to be able to reach out to the world. Listen, contributing to what you share in makes so much sense that God commands it. He commands it. So how do we do it? Let's end with this. How do we do it? Now, before answering that, because I want to get a little bit practical now, because I find these things, you have to be a little bit more practical. Before answering that, I want to clear out, let me be clear about the kind of God that we are talking about. This isn't the kind of transactional, give me, I give you kind of God. In fact, you can't buy God by your giving. If it's actually the other way around. Now, when in Numbers chapter 3, when God says that the Levites will be mine, Right? Let them be mine. Let them be given to the service of the temple. Do you know what he hinged that on? Listen to what he says. The Levites shall be mine, for all the firstborn are mine. On the day I struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I consecrated for my own all the firstborn in Israel, both of man and of beast. They shall be mine. I am the Lord. Do you know what he's saying? I am saying the Levites should give themselves to me. It's not if the Levites give themselves to me, then I will give myself to them. He delivered them out of bondage first. God is such a gracious God. He graciously gave deliverance to the Levites before he then said, now give yourself to me. It's not that you give God and then God gives you back. It's because we give because we have been given to so he had delivered them and then he called them to serve. Now here's the problem though. That deliverance was deliverance from physical slavery. There was, it was a picture of the slavery they had in their hearts. How do I know that? The same people that were delivered are the people hundreds of years later that Malachi is rebuking. There was another slavery that they had. It was a slavery of sin in their hearts. It wasn't only the Gentiles that had that slavery. Even the people that had the, that bear the promise had that slavery. If you're not a Christian here, don't hear me what I'm trying to say. God is trying to deliver you from the slavery of money. You don't want an object to be your God. You don't want an object to own you. 
It will always fail you. What is God's plea to you? Just as he did for the Israelites, he's saying, as we see in verse 7, return to me. Because if you return to me, I will return to you. And you say, oh, how do I do that? By paying my tithes? No. Again, to you that is not a Christian, God wants to give to you first. How? Remember it says that they are under a curse. They are under a curse because they violated the contract in the law covenant. But the curse had already started from outside Israel. It started with Adam. And God's blessing is the removal of this curse. And how does he do it? Listen to what he says in Galatians 3. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, curse is everyone who is hung on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham. What is the blessing of Abraham? A brand new G-Wagon. Of course not. That is such a poor blessing. The blessing of Aaron, that the blessing of Abraham may come on the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. God says that, look, I will open up the floodgates of heaven. What is the great flood? What is the great promise that is going to come down from heaven? First, God came as a man and he took his, his, the curse for you on the cross. And after that, he rose up from the grave. He ascended into heaven. And then he poured out from heaven upon us the Holy Spirit. And that's how the Gentiles can be blessed. The promise of Abraham is the promise of Abraham's offspring. Who takes away the curse? Jesus Christ is that promise. And so that all our, the sin and the consequences for all our idolatry is poured out on Jesus. He is cursed on our behalf. So that when we believe and turn to him, when we return to God through Jesus Christ, God pours out. He opens the windows of heaven and pours out the floodgate of his spirit so that you will no longer serve worthless idols and now you can serve God in true generosity. Amen. So if you're, a Christian, if you're not a Christian, return to him. This is a God that doesn't ask you to give your life for him. He has already given his life for you. And if we are Christians, what's the word to us? Return to him too. Don't be caught in the deception out there that either manipulates you through fear or fantastic lies. The whole divine nonsense and the seed sowing nonsense. But don't also be deceived by allowing your stingy side to appeal to you. Return to God. See that the gospel of grace, that gracious gospel that you believe, it obliges you, obliges you to be generous in a disciplined way. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 13. Because of the service by which you have proved yourself, that's generosity, others will praise God for the, listen, obedience that accompanies your confession of the, of the gospel of Christ. There is an obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. Or, Christians, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Make sure that you're giving. Look, there's spontaneous giving. That's fine. Somebody comes to you with a need. But guys, let us, let's be adults. Let's not get into this whole, I'm a New Testament Christian, I give as I feel. Just think about it. If you give as you, if we take that whole feeling thing, the church that you serve in, right? Imagine if you came on this Sunday, the next Sunday we said, the staff said, well, we don't really feel like having Sunday. We don't feel it. Like what? The regularity of the spiritual food that you get is not hinged on somebody's feelings. I can tell you, Kualumi doesn't always want to organize everything here. I don't always feel like preaching. But because our salvation is not hinged on how we feel or how Christ felt, if it was how Christ felt, remember what he said on the Garden of Gets, at the Garden of Gethsemane, if this were possible, let it pass over me. If our salvation was hinged on how Christ felt, you and I would not be saved today. 
if your gracious giving, your generous giving is hinged on how you feel, on how, you know, things, all of those things, I went to buy this thing, if it was hinged on that, then I don't think we've truly understood the gospel. If City Kids was hinged on how the teachers that were, uh, the, uh, 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 what's her name, Funke was feeling, would it be there? No. Let's be adults. The fact that God calls us not to give grudgingly doesn't mean that giving, giving that is not grudgingly is not giving that is always spontaneous. In fact, in many ways, for the things to go on, it, it shows us how and where we've come to in our maturity with Christ. You know Elijah is playing, but you are going to wait a little bit because I have one more thing to say. Uh, two more things to say, but let me quickly. The other one I would say this. I've, I've spoken about the community running, but don't forget, we see that sometimes people in the community cannot give, like they cannot give. And this, this is what turns the whole just uh, 10% you must give the, the, the devour thing all on its head. Because at that point, part of the things that you give here is what we can use to take care of those people. You say taking care of the poor. Well, the Bible says first, do good to all men, especially those that are household of faith. There are people with needs that cannot give outside the church, but it says first think about the people in the church. How we support them? If, well, you know, I felt like giving today, but today I don't feel like giving. It's in there to make the church function and also for the mission of the church. So let me close with this question, answering this question. So how much should I pay? What should I pay? Just give me the percentage. What is the New Testament stated percentage of giving? Well, it's not stated. It's not stated. I've used the tithes, but I'm not saying that it is 10%. The New Testament doesn't mandate. However, the fact that it's not stated means that God, and yet it's meant to be mandated and regular, means that God is saying you have to state it yourself. You have to state it yourself. Don't say, well, it's not stated, so I give it. No. That means you come into a covenant with God and say, every month this is what I'm going to be giving, and stick to it. So now, based on that, let me give you four Grace field is field of grace, but practical and disciplined tips for our giving. First of all, one, set a percentage that reflects the grace of God in your life and your capacity at that time. Set a percentage. In other words, what you don't start saying, well, what is it I meant to give? How many? What does the grace of Christ mean to you? And what is your capacity at that time? Set a percentage. For many of us, you start, maybe you want to start with 10% as a guy. But for many of us, at the season that we are in life, it should be above 10%. It should be above 10%. Second, that percentage should be on your total income. On your total income. Not after you have deducted needs and wants. This is what I mean. So people say, oh, all right, the money has come in. All right, children's fees. Um, a rent, fine. Then they now say, ah, ah, man, we are saving for holiday. Oh. All right, so deduct that. Uh, DSTV, okay, let's deduct that. Ah, man, me and my wife, we have to do dating every, every month. Fine dining, let's deduct that. Ah, our investment, we have to be good stewards. Let's deduct that. Ah, recreation is important. These children, you know, all work and no play. Uh-huh. So you now deduct that. Then, after you've deducted all of those things, your giving them becomes 10% of that. That's robbery. It is. It is. Why am I saying? It's because, again, think about it. You belong to a commonwealth of people. You are taking the best out of it, but you want to, in some sense, you know, remove all your wants first before you now give something. Don't do that. I would say, after your shelter and the fact that you, you are, you are your food, after that, the next, this is how you should think. My money has come in, this one, this one, we are giving, what is it? Set that percentage on your total income, not on after you've deducted all the wants. The, look, we live in an age where needs have become wants. DSTV has become a want. All of these things, holidays have eh, become a need. Holidays have become a need. All of these things. How am I going to spend this money? How am I going to look fly? How am I going to, you know? All right, I'm giving you practical tips now. All right, third. If both spouses receive an income, then A, you should either give separately or your joint giving percentage should be based on your joint income. You don't understand what I mean. 
Some of us will say something like this. Um, who is my idea? Okay, let's say Femi and Tosi. Femi and Tosi are receiving an income, right? Ah, it's Tosi that gives oh, to church. Did you give? Did you give to church? Okay, fine. The, the Oshunis have given. You see what I mean? I'm saying all of these things. We, we may say it, but there's a way the idol of money starts to help us justify these things. No, both of you are receiving an income. Both of you come. When did, did uh, when Emmanuel and Kwelumi came to church? If Emmanuel came to church and Kwelumi stayed at home, right? Kwelumi said that Emmanuel has received food for two of us, spiritual food. If Emmanuel is blessed, I am blessed because we are one. Stop it. Both of you, if you are giving us one lump sum, what is the total of your income? Then say your percentage of that. If you are not, then both of you do your percentages on that income. And then finally, get someone, some people or an organization of need and commit to them. That is, after you've talked about your church, you should also, this is part of what it means to be generous. So that people don't make this, can I pay my, I'm not calling it tithe, but let's, as people put it, can I pay my tithe to the poor? No, you can't give your regular giving of the church to the poor. You should give to the church and also give to the poor. And don't make it an either, oh, I've given to the church. Well, you know, and the church has some poor people that it gives. No. So guys, look at it this way. As Dami showed us last week, we have received the gospel. We have the people that, people should be saying, Man, those people are like, I wonder what God they serve. That they're always just looking for an opportunity to give. Oh, I know. The God that they serve is the one who did not spare his only son, but gave him up for them, for all of them. Let people be able to read something about the gospel of Jesus Christ in the way we give our money. Commit to your church. If you've not been the kind of person that gives regularly to this church and you've been coming here, I'm not trying to condemn. There's no condemnation in Christ. But there is a, a, a decision that you have to make to turn back. Commit. Make that percentage. Look at it. Because there, has, there is an obedience that should accompany a confession of the gospel of Christ. Amen? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for speaking to us. Powerfully, we thank you many times that you speak to us. It's not always comfortable, but that's why you are God. You are here to change us. We pray, Lord, that those who have heard this word, where we need changes, Lord, give us the grace by your spirit. We want to live better. We want to worship you better. Grant us the courage, O oh Lord, to repent. Not the courage to start trying to accuse people or looking for holes in the arguments or things like that. Help us, Lord God Almighty, to shun the idols and to move towards generosity. Help us to start on a new day if we have done things differently. We ask all this through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Thank you for listening to the Gospel in Lagos. We pray you've been blessed by this message. To learn more about City Church, visit www.citychurchlagos.com City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos.